going to be in Philippians 4 today. As we wrap up our study of Philippians, head into the summer. You know, we live in a generally joyless and unhappy world. And there are a number of reasons for this, from violence and war to global pandemics to shifting power structures, all of which leave people feeling vulnerable, unstable, and full of fear. And these are just a few of the reasons. Upheaval and change of one sort or another is inevitable. And none of us are very comfortable with that reality. Historian Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. wrote that our society is marked by inextinguishable discontent. Think about that term for a sec, inextinguishable discontent. A dissatisfaction that nothing can appease. A bottomless void that nothing can fill. Schlesinger went on to say that disappointment is the universal modern malady. And it's hard to see how anyone can look around at the state of things and come to any different conclusion, really. It seems as if at least part of the human condition as we know it is a deep, disorderly displeasure with everything. German philosopher Immanuel Kant once wrote, give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything is not everything. We are never content, never able to just be at ease, never able to be at peace. It's just not in our broken nature. We spend all our time working and rarely enjoying what we work for. We make money so we can spend money on things. And some of them we need, most we don't. And none of them bring us joy. They don't fill that void, they, they can't. And by the time most of us realize these things, a big chunk of our lives are behind us and we find ourselves full of regret, which only spins the cycle back around in a different way because regret is just discontent by a different name. Not much has changed since the first century. They may not have had the technology we have, but the human condition was just as prevalent then as it is now. They too experienced this unruly discontent. But Paul wrote this letter to offer the believers in Philippi another way, a way that was radically different from the way of the world. By consistently pointing to Jesus and his resurrection, Paul offered them hope. And then through that hope, he knew they could experience joy and contentment, which is what we're going to explore today. Like I said, this is our final week looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we've follow the threads of servanthood and joy within this letter. Today we find ourselves at Paul's closing remarks. And having encouraged these believers to keep moving forward toward the resurrection, Paul closed the letter by highlighting the joy and contentment of the Lord and his ever-reliable provision. 
So follow along with me as we read in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. <coughs> The God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And the Philippians, yourself, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. So chapter 4 begins with Paul's closing thoughts on the previous section about straining forward toward the resurrection. And after a warning about the kind of people who steal their joy, Paul encouraged the Philippians to recognize their heavenly citizenship. We talked about that a week ago. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul reasserted his love and longing for them. And then urged them to stand firm in the Lord, calling them his beloved. And this is the context that leads into his closing thoughts concerning the two women who were apparently not getting along very well. The Greek word that Paul used to address them here is really interesting. It's parakaleo, and it means to entreat or exhort, 
So it's a compound word. You know how I like to take those apart, which is what they mean. The first is, uh, the first part is para, which means alongside or even very close beside, as in right next to. And then the second word is kaleo, which means to invite or call. In other words, just as Jesus had called disciples to walk with him, Paul was calling these women to walk close beside him and therefore each other. It's really a very intimate term. If he had been there in person, in fact, it might have looked like him asking them both to go for a walk and he would walk with one on either side as they talked and worked through whatever issue had driven them apart. What's more, Paul based this invitation on the gospel, on the fact that both women had worked alongside him and each other for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And that both women had been given the Holy Spirit when their names were written in the book of life and should have been willing and able to address whatever the issue was between them in order to continue moving forward with the good news. The church has a long history of splitting and dividing over various issues. And some of those issues are important, really important, but some are not. The trouble is we tend to get really opinionated about some of the ones that aren't. And then we find ways to justify ourselves and our views when conflict arises. We engage in what is known as confirmation bias. If you've ever heard that term, it just simply means the tendency to search for and interpret and uh, favor and recall information in a way that confirms or supports what we already thought. In other words, we are right, never mind the facts. Now, I've seen congregations get fussy and have people leave over some pretty silly stuff. And the joke often gets tossed around about arguing over the color of the carpet. I've even told my own real life story of the church I grew up in having a massive fight over the color of the wallpaper that was behind the church choir loft. The point here is that we can all too easily get sideways about some trivial things. And when we do, we are definitely not living joyfully. We tend to end up angry, dismayed, sad, hurt, and emotionally drained. When that happens, we start to think in terms of us versus them. And it can be terribly difficult to get along with something, someone we see as our opposition, or even worse, our enemy. So how did Paul handle this situation when he called these two women to walk beside him and each other? Well, after reminding them of their gospel calling and mission, he encouraged them to rejoice. And then he said it again. We all know that in Jewish thinking, a repetition is a matter of emphasis, which means Paul was emphasizing the need for joy. And not just the need, but the availability of joy in Christ. Whatever it was that was driving them apart, Paul wanted them to stop and reset their focus on Jesus and the gospel so that they could refresh their sense of hope and joy and come together for the sake of the kingdom. 
But in a much larger sense, Paul was encouraging all the Philippian believers to rest in the hope and joy of the Lord. To be content in whatever circumstances life might throw at them. And by extension, we can find encouragement in this too. If we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit resides within us, we have access to the same hope and joy and contentment that Paul wrote about. Amen. We can rest easy in the Lord even as we keep moving forward toward the resurrection. When we stop to think about contentment, what kind of ideas fill our mind? Are they of everything going well and not having any trouble? Do they involve hammocks, palm trees, wasting away again in Margaritaville? <laughs> Is that what joy and contentment really look like? Or do they look like having a deep, blessed assurance that Jesus is ours no matter what is going on in the world around us. Even if there is war, violence, or a global pandemic, or a shifting base of political and cultural power, are we like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by such winds? Or are we at ease and at peace in Christ no matter what? Trusting in our hearts that whatever happens in the world, or our country, or state, or town, our Heavenly Father has us in His hands, just like the old children's song. He's got the whole world in His hands. Y'all remember that? Is that what we really believe? In all of the uproar of an inextinguishably discontent world, are we secure in the providence of Christ, or are we feeling vulnerable, unstable, and full of fear like everyone else? Continuing his thought, in verse 5, Paul wanted to foster a sense of balance among the believers. He wanted them to be fair and sensible, to exercise common sense and sound judgment, to act and react in a manner that fit with the good news they were proclaiming. After all, if they were fussing and fighting or backbiting each other or gossiping, how could they possibly think that would be attractive to those outside the faith? They could find that anywhere, just like we can. That kind of interaction is literally everywhere, all around us. But Paul was calling on the church to be different to stand out, to be marked by people and relationships that demonstrated a sense of reasonableness, to have what we might call a healthy relational dynamic. When people in a chaotic world look around and see more and more chaos, they can feel hopeless and joyless and inextinguishably discontent. But when they see a group of people who love each other and get along, who even when they make mistakes or hurt each other or get into conflict, consistently come together to confess and apologize and make things right and work things out. Not only is that attractive, it's also the way the gospel works in our lives. 
It's the way the Holy Spirit is chipping away at the darkness inside us and sculpting a masterpiece. It's the way our peace in Christ and the joy of the Lord are made apparent. When believers can get along and live reasonable lives together in spite of whatever differences we might have, it's like a marquee lit up with the name of the movie the theater is showing, now showing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want people to see in us? If it isn't, why are we even here? And if it is, then don't we all have some people we need to talk to? To confess, apologize, make things right, work things out with them? Isn't that what reasonable believers do? Isn't that how reasonable believers act? If we are not willing to address such situations in our own lives, then of course we are going to be miserable and discontent, just like everyone else. And if that's true, then why would anyone in town want to be a part of our congregation? Why would we even want to be around each other? Maybe we have some issues to work through. Paul knew that the way of Jesus was better than all of that. That those who had given their lives to Jesus and been given the Holy Spirit would live differently and follow a different path. That they would lean into the joy of the Lord and find contentment there and would continually be changed into the likeness of Jesus himself. And to reinforce that idea, Paul reminded them that the Lord was near. The Greek word he used there is engus, and it means near in place or time, which means Paul could have been saying that Jesus is right here among us or that his return was imminent. But since we know Jesus hasn't returned yet, it seems the true meaning is that Jesus is right here among us. In the same sense that we read about in Matthew 18, 20, where he himself said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Isn't that basically what Paul was saying as well? The Lord is at hand. He's right here. So don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't fear. But pray. Give thanks. Paul may have used different words there than Jesus did, but the idea is the same. He knew that moving forward through whatever friction that came was a matter of consistently connecting in prayer with a sense of gratefulness to the Lord. Because what usually happens is that when we take our eyes off of Jesus, things get negative very quickly. Instead of aligning our way to God's way, we get it in our heads that our way is God's way. And then we act and react out of selfishness and fear, and then we try to justify our thoughts and emotions with spiritual sounding language instead of admitting where we messed up and making things right. It's a vicious cycle. Whereas when we consistently come to the Lord in prayer with thankful hearts, it refocuses us 
in a positive manner on what really matters. That's why we should enter into these matters on our knees first and foremost. If we begin at the throne, things are always less likely to go sideways than if we don't. And Paul reassured the Philippians, and by extension us, that doing this leads to the peace of God that passes all understanding guarding our hearts. As a result, Paul wrote a list of all the kinds of things that would be of assistance in this whole process. He said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, these are the kinds of things we're supposed to be setting our minds on. And among these, there is sort of a, a running theme of positivity, of goodness, of wholeness, of the kinds of things that might consistently draw our attention to the throne of our king and keep us focused in the right direction. It's weird, though, how much we push back against this, how much we would rather focus on the wrong things. Take our news, for example. It's mostly full of all the bad stuff that's going on. And we can't seem to look away. We are drawn to it like bugs to the zapper. It's no wonder so many people are discontent. If you spend all your time watching negative news stories, you will get to wondering if there is anything good in this world at all. In 1967, our country was knee-deep in the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and various other things, the widespread discontent was tearing us apart. People with strong opinions on both sides clashed in the streets, in the media, and in the halls of government, and many also clashed in the church. It was a chaotic and scary time. And in the middle of all this, songwriters Bob Feely and George David Weiss wrote a song that was recorded by Louis Armstrong entitled, What a Wonderful World. And it wasn't irony. In the lyrics are lines about the beauty of green trees, red roses, blue skies and white clouds, rainbows, people's faces as they greet each other, babies crying and growing up. All of these are summed up with the line, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Armstrong sang as only he could. If you've heard it, you can probably even hear his voice in your head right now. It's fascinating that this song appeared at such a crazy time with so many negative things going on in the world. In a sense, though, this is what Paul was advocating. Not that we should be ignorant of what is really going on around us or have our heads stuck in the clouds or buried in the sand, not anything like that but we should be able to keep a positive outlook, to cherish the good. For those who are in Christ, who have his peace that passes all understanding and the promise and hope of resurrection, what could be more positive? If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, how could we revel in being negative? As those who bear 
the good news, shouldn't our lives reflect the good news that we're sharing? Not that we're perfect. We addressed that a week ago. But that we are consistently striving forward together. Even if we don't agree about everything. Because there's a lot of things that we can disagree about and still be on the same page when it comes to the gospel. Which is sort of where some folks get really mixed up because they are willing to divide and split over things that are not essential. Now as, as a Baptist church, we don't follow a specific creed. But I posted the Apostles' Creed on our website because it relates the most basic essential ideas of our faith that would bind us together in Christ. And for those not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Catholic there, by the way, just means universal, like it's everything. Now, it's written in a little different form on our website. It's more of a last translation there. <clears throat> but these are the core tenets of the gospel and our faith. The essentials which bring us together. Outside of these things, we can disagree about pretty much everything else. And we typically do. But it's important that we not draw our lines in the sand too close, lest we end up alone and outside the actual fellowship of believers. Now at this point, Paul thanked the Philippians again for their care and concern and went on in <clears throat> verses 11 through 13 to explain that whatever circumstances might happen, he was content in the hope and joy of Christ. That he could do all things through Christ. That verse, it gets taken out of context so often it's kind of ridiculous. Paul wasn't saying that he could do whatever he wanted and that God would give him the thumbs up. Which is the way it's sort of typically tossed around today. On the contrary, in context, Paul was explaining that whatever came his way, whatever the situation, good or bad, trusted that Jesus would be with him and would go through it with him and give him the strength to face whatever he would face. And that's true for us too. Whatever we face, the Lord is near at hand, going through it with us, giving us the strength to face whatever we have to face, whether it's good or bad. And it's really just that simple. As Paul closed the letter, he thanked the Philippians again for their continuing efforts to support him and his ministry and 
for sending a gift with Epaphroditus. And he reminded them, and maybe even himself, that God would supply every need. That God would do this through Jesus and in so doing reveal his glory and the glory of the heavenly kingdom. But there's a connection here that Paul was making. The way God provided was through people meeting needs as the body of Christ. Which takes us sort of full circle to the servanthood thing where Paul began the letter. It makes me wonder, what need are we meeting? <clears throat> what needs are we even aware of in our town and area, in our state, country, and beyond that in the world? How are we reaching out into the lives of those who have needs? How are we being the way God provides and supplies others? How are we engaged in the mission that we have been called to? I know it's been a weird year or so, and I know that we've been blessed to come through it as well as we have. But we don't get a pass on being involved in the kingdom mission any more than any other congregation does. We need to step up and maybe even make sacrifices. Because somewhere in the world, whether near or far, there is a missionary sort of like Paul who's trying to minister and that missionary needs whatever we can offer. There are needs around us and those needs need, need, need to be met. So as we close our study on Paul's letter to the Philippians <coughs> church, let's consider how we might be servants. How we might come alongside each other and experience the joy and contentment of the Lord in any and all circumstances. And how we might be available to our Heavenly Father in any and every way He might want to utilize us. For the sake of Jesus and His kingdom, will you pray with me?